Welcome ladies and gentlemen to the Viewer's Cut. My name is Adam Galloway and today we have two very special guests that will be joining us. The uh, theme of this episode is going to be discussing mental health representation in film. And the two guests that we have are both doctors. Uh, their names are Theron and Ashan, and they're both with me now. Say hello and tell us a little bit about yourselves. All right, so my name's Theron. I work as a psychiatry resident at Stratford General Hospital. Um, what a resident means is I'm, I have my MD and I'm doing specialty training in psychiatry. And then I have to do some exams. I'm in the process of finishing that up right now. And then in, in three months, I'm going to be, I'll be done, hopefully. My name's Ashan. I'm also a psychiatry resident, um, a little uh, further behind in my training than, um, than Theron. Practice in the um, Southwest Ontario uh, region as a trainee. And my views are also my own, not necessarily of my program. And I want to emphasize that I'm also a trainee. I'm going to be um, expressing my opinions on subjects that are both settled and debated by the field without complete knowledge. Um, but I am someone who loves movies and I'm happy to um, give my thoughts on them. So the first question I have for you guys, uh, since you guys are experts in the field, uh, how important is it for film to have mental health accuracy? Thank you for the question. And to, before I get to my answer, I want to offer a small distinction that sometimes it is worth considering how to depict mental illness correctly, but also how to depict mental health care correctly. And I will say that in either case, that if mental health or mental health care is depicted very well, it'll allow appropriate identification by the viewer with lived experience and appropriate empathy by viewers who are lay viewers or caregiving viewers or supporting viewers. And I think as far as accuracy goes, if I'm watching a movie and things are occurring that to me clearly would not happen in the real world, then I become aware that I'm watching a movie. I kind of disengage from the content. So I think to be more gripping, you know, the, the honesty in portrayal of illness or caregiving as Ashan had mentioned, it makes it feel like more of a real story. And I think those movies that feel more real, that I'm not aware that I'm watching a production, those I'm going to be more engaged with. And I, I think um, as far as uh, the, like, the proper balance between accurate portrayal of mental health and then also just telling a compelling movie, there's one story, um, a supervisor of mine who trained in, in Portland, he said that one of his colleagues uh, was asked, like when they were filming uh, Cuckoo's Nest, uh, his, his colleague was asked, you know, we want you to portray a psychiatrist. Um, and they were looking for a, like a particular ethnicity. This was that of, of his colleague. And he said, I'll, I'll play the role, but I just want to suggest these edits to the script because they're inaccurate, they're inappropriate. And the response was, okay, we'll just find someone else. So we're going to get kind of into like, uh, you know, more in depth as we go here with, with uh, individual films. But, you know, overall, is mental health representation good or bad in the film industry? I think in a, in a general sense, my answer would be it depends. There are some that stand out as like really good. I don't have any complaints. And then there are others that are, are almost offensive. Yeah, and some and it's worth noting that sometimes they try and 
depict mental illness or mental health care and get it right or wrong. And there are some in interesting examples where it wasn't even their intention to depict either correctly, and they do an amazing job. Yeah, yeah, that that's that's quite right. Like I think stories, like any human story that has truth that portrays a person's struggles and their emotional reactions can start to get into telling a mental health story almost inadvertently. Like there's some movies we'll talk about later, um, I guess as a topic sentence, The Exorcist being one, that's not explicitly a story about uh, a mental health problem, but it has some similar uh, elements that, that would relate to the telling of a, of a mental health story. So, so they're not even trying to tell it well, they just do. Well, that's a perfect segue. I was actually going to bring up The Exorcist, uh, Theron. So if you two want to elaborate a little bit more, let's talk about The Exorcist. What are your thoughts? So when, when we were planning to do this podcast, actually, um, Adam had uh, come up with a, a list of like 15 or something movies that seemed to him to represent mental health. And it's a great list, I might add. But uh, I, I thought, let's add The Exorcist to that. Um, because even though it's not explicitly about mental health, I think that the way they portray Regan and her descent into uh, being possessed, it has some common elements with what happened. This, is, this has just been how I've reacted to the movie, that it has some elements that are similar to what happens when you're a parent and there's something changing in your child and they're having their first episode of psychosis. And the way they do the medical workup even, I thought there's there's got to be some doctor on, on staff who's critiquing this and improving the way they portray it because, you know, comments like we, we've got to rule out anything physical first, I, I thought was like, that's exactly what we do. If someone that age is having a psychotic episode, you might do an MRI, you might do some physical tests to make sure that you're not missing something else. And there's also, you know, that that dynamic with her mother who keeps saying, Jesus Christ, are you saying this is all in her head? Like, like that, that kind of reaction, no one wants to think that their child is developing a mental thing. They want to focus on physical first. And the mother is very, very distressed at the possibility that this could be mental in nature. Yeah, and I'd like to contrast how, um, how cool and collected and professional the providers seem and contrast that to a show like Grey's Anatomy or House where every new medical decision is with some yelling or some fl dramatic flair. And that's exactly what we try and avoid when we deliver our care. We try and be as cool and collected and as compassionate as possible. And even though in the case of Reagan, the care shifts from being taken on by the medical community by taken on by the spiritual community, the clergy, you can kind of see how the care shifts from medical workup to spiritual interventions. Um, Despite that shift happening, a lot of parallels remain. The clergy will round on Reagan every day. They'll get a, or what it appears like every day. They'll get a report from the mother. They'll go and see Reagan, and they'll see her illness evolve. And as, as, and as it evolves, they try successively um, stronger and stronger interventions, at least within their world. 
Yeah, and also I think the portrayal of, uh, like you, you talked about the transition from physical to meant like more spiritual and there's a, a broader comment i think about our society's transition from handling challenging matters where maybe a hundred years ago we would have been more inclined to seek comfort and solace from the church and visiting the the clergy and and now with maybe those institutions having less relevance in our society there may be more of an inclination to seek help from counselors to seek help from therapists and the medical system and then that transition is embodied in father Karras, right like he's he's the i think he started as a priest and then the um the religious order he was in paid for him to go to medical school to become a psychiatrist and then also, there, there's truth in the way her illness is portrayed, how the healthcare is portrayed, and also what it's like being a healthcare provider. I mean, in a very dramatic sense, but you can see that Karras is, is almost trying to save himself by saving Reagan. Like, he's got this, this challenge with uh, his mother's declining health. He feels guilty that he couldn't save his mother but now he, he wants to save Reagan, and it's very hard on him emotionally when he can't, and then he needs to call in the help of a more experienced person. He needs a second opinion, and they can only do it together. Yeah, and it goes to show the different reasons people enter medical school. One, uh, one mentor said there are really only three reasons why people become a doctor. One, it's something of a family business, and they're the next in line. Another is that they have been in the caregiving role earlier on in their life, and that leads them to their new vocation. And another who have perhaps an intellectual um, drive to blend science and service. So, so uh, which one are you, Ashan? So I guess you've just become my therapist there, and, and <laughs> I must be that uh, patient who who refers to you by your first name. <laughs> uh, but speaking of being a patient, one question I wanted to ask you is we as providers, whether you're a nurse or a doctor or a social worker, we have to walk a fine line between seeing, um, seeing someone as suffering, but not excusing um, dangerous behavior and not minimizing or normalizing um, functional impairment caused by a disease. How do you feel uh, how do you feel the filmmakers uh, portrayed Regan as a patient? Uh, interesting. Um, well, I, I think she seemed perhaps com completely helpless. Um, and, and that was one thing I guess I hadn't considered in my idealizing of this movie, uh, that it was just all perfect. You know, she seems almost to have no agency and maybe that wouldn't be accurate if if this were truly portraying a, a psychotic illness i mean i don't want to give the movie a hard time because that's not what they were trying to do but i thought she seemed kind of helpless what, what did you think Ashan? yeah and i think in those difficult periods where we have to discharge our legal duty to involuntarily detain someone and treat them the person in that scenario, I think, still expresses a bit more agency and a bit yeah. more goals um, about how they should be treated. Yeah. But I also wanted to ask, how do you feel the professionalism of the staff were? 
when faced with uh, with this uh, deterioration um, depicted on the screen. Uh, yeah, well, I think that the first doctor that we encounter, I mean, maybe he's a neurologist. Uh, he, he's kind of gormless, like he's, he's bald, he's not... Uh, like he's a realistic portrayal of a doctor. Like usually in in like Grey's Anatomy, everyone is in, incredibly uh, photogenic, and that's not realistic. So I liked that this doctor. He was he seemed fragile. He seemed um, unappealing in some ways, and also he accepted that he didn't know what to do next. And he he seemed quite professional. And then. Then you get someone else who I think is a, a hypnotist, and he gives you a bit of a feel that he's kind of a snake oil salesman. And Reagan sees through him, and I think like uh, puts a, a, a death grip on his balls or something, and he, he can't get out, and he's just screaming helplessly. And I think we all kind of wanted to see him leave because he didn't seem to be as professional and, and dedicated. I guess. What did What did you think, Ashan? Well. I think it is natural for many uh, many caregivers, uh, proximal caregivers or family members who care for those with mental illness, to sometimes feel frustrated by what mm-hmm. the mental health care field offers and mm-hmm. will turn elsewhere. Sometimes it's as simple as turning to a supplement. Sometimes it's about right. going to the church um, for an illness that is best treated with a biological agent, a pill, um, for instance. All excellent uh, points, guys. I think that was was great. I have never really talked about The Exorcist this in depth. I just had one quick question I wanted to ask, just to end uh, on, on the you know the Exorcist portion of this. And uh, w- when the movie came out, I know it was it was very controversial uh, from a religious standpoint. And the one scene that I always think about uh, being extremely controversial, and I wanted to get your thoughts on it, is the scene when she uses the crucifix uh, to masturbate, uh, and the doctors have to attend to her and, and all that. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on. On how impactful that scene was and what it means. So I'm I'm glad I'm making my my point effective our point effectively here, Adam, because you referred to them as as doctors. But I guess if we're being uh, pedantic, the doctor would just be Father Karras, and then uh, Max von Sydow's character is, isn't a doctor; he's uh, just a priest. But they there is a feeling that the two of them together are doctors, but. Um, I like that you brought this point up, which gives me a chance to explain what I mean by a first episode of psychosis. I think the sexual component, I'm not saying that's a part of psychosis. I think that's a separate part of the storytelling. When I say it seems like she's suffering from psychosis, it's um, maybe feeling like she's losing control over herself. She's frightened. uh, She's hearing voices. Um, but the the sexual part, I think that's another story they're telling in this movie about how perhaps it's frightening when your uh, prepubescent child is starting to change. They're becoming a sexual being, and that's sort of a, a separate thing. Or just when the behavior really escalates, and what do the providers do when that happens? It's a really tough question. So The Exorcist was one of many movies that I um, that that Theron watched. Uh, it, like he added it to the list that I sent to him. So I just wanted to quickly share the list of movies that uh, Theron watched leading up to this. So The Exorcist, obviously, uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Rain Man, uh, Silence of the Lambs, Awakenings, Goodwill Hunting, The Sixth Sense. Girl Interrupted, A Beautiful Mind, The Aviator, Black Swan, Shutter Island, Silver Linings Playbook, A Star is Born, and Joker. 
So we're going to start with A Beautiful Mind because I know Theron has a couple things he wanted to say and uh, Ashan, you can jump in as well. So do you believe A Beautiful Mind has an accurate portrayal of schizophrenia? So I'd say yes and no. Um, The yes part that I I think the movie did really well was uh, the transition from reality to a very well-developed, consistent delusional system was was well done and the the audience doesn't quite know when the schizophrenia has taken over there there were a couple of things that happened like oh that really did could that have happened okay and and then they don't like you it doesn't get confronted that this couldn't possibly be real until later on in the movie and i think this shows you know it, it's convincing when you have a delusion that it is true um, other people may be saying it isn't, but but you feel for yourself that this is absolutely what's going on, and that's what John Nash was experiencing. And then what else I think was accurate was uh, it, it shed light on how difficult it can be to go from thinking you have a very special and important purpose as part of your delusion to going back to your regular life. And that, I think, was a bit deflating for John Nash because he thought he was on a secret, a top-secret mission to protect his country from invading Russian spies and then found out all that work he thought he'd been doing was for naught. And this, I think, portrays quite accurately um, something that contributes to suicide risk in schizophrenia is when you go from thinking all of these delusions are true to not and and that departure from uh, one world that you'd been living in for so long can be very very hard and increase increase risk of suicide when that insight is coming together. Um, what I didn't think was the best portrayal was the the thought disorder and maybe this was Russell Crowe's accurate portrayal of just John Nash, but the the thought disorder the um, delayed speech, some of those more subtle symptoms of schizophrenia seemed very obviously to not be there. Um, so my uh, my inner critique was coming up while I was watching this movie, and I, I was aware of that deficit. But but overall, it seemed to be... Um, who am I to criticize such a, a, a well-respected uh, actor? Yeah, I obviously have no idea, you know, like... No specifically what was right and what was wrong in the movie. But in regards to just Russell Crowe alone, I always thought that he was robbed of an Academy Award. I think it's his greatest performance. I found him very believable in the, you know, in the role. And uh, I think it was, it was very impactful for me, but it's also nice to hear your perspective on, on what was accurate and what was not. I think this is a good time to reiterate that those who are living with an illness or seeking care are not trying to carry a story or engage an audience the way a character or an act or the character's actor does in a story. In fact, I think it would be kind of a mental status sign or part of their diagnostic formulation if they were. And that goes to show that an artist who is portraying someone with mental illness both has to be accurate, but in the end they have to tell a story that, a, that an audience will buy. So I wonder if that would have suffered if he depicted thought disorder more accurately. Mm. It's quite a disjointed and a um, cumbersome, I don't know if cumbersome is the right word, but it's difficult 
to listen and sift through them and it's hard to maybe enjoy it as much if an actor were doing it. But I also think another possible explanation is that um, schizophrenia can hit many people with varying levels of baseline intelligence. And I was wondering whether those individuals you've treated there and who have had psychosis, but started from a, um, from a very high level intellect, how much thought disorder did they have versus those who had their first episode with a with what appears to be a, a, a lower baseline intellect. Yeah, th- that's a great point, Ashan. And based on what you've said and what Adam said, I think maybe I'm <laughs> wanting to retract my, my criticism of Russell Crowe. Because you're, you're right, it would not be... Um, this would be a reason for artistic license uh, because it would be a less compelling performance if he was depicting thought disorder accurately. And you're also right, uh, a protective factor against... Um, developing uh, severe thought disorder would be later onset, better uh, pre-morbid functioning. So how well you're doing academically and so forth before the onset of the illness. So you're right. It, it is possible that that was exactly how John Nash's schizophrenia uh, manifested. So I just wanted to quickly bring this up because I just noticed this while I was looking at the list now. The Academy Awards really uh, leans towards these types of performances because basically all the movies I said all had Academy Award nominated performances and some won like Joaquin Phoenix won for The Joker, uh, Jennifer Lawrence won for Silver Linings Playbook, Natalie Portman won for Black Swan, uh, Girl Interrupted, Angelina Jolie won, Good Will Hunting, Awakening, Silence of the Lambs, Rain Man, there's another uh, win with uh, Dustin Hoffman. So it's very interesting, and I just wanted to know if you guys had any thoughts on why these performances are so well-received by critics. Well, you know, Adam, this is why this is your podcast. That's that's really impressive movie knowledge. I've been looking at this list for months, and that never crossed my mind. Yeah, and this is a list where the accuracy is variable. So I think it goes to show that in the end, they won their... Oscars for telling the stories in a very compelling way. So the next movie we want to talk about is Girl Interrupted. I actually, uh, you just watched it, I I believe, Theron. The um, thing we want to talk about is borderline personality disorder and how it's treated. And I just wanted you guys to discuss a little bit uh, and how it's displayed in the film. So truth be told, I've not seen Girl Interrupted, but I and any other person involved in mental health care will see Um, cases of borderline personality disorder. So I won't read off all the criteria, but I will give the introductory statement in the criteria, which summarizes it well. A pervasive pattern of instability of interpersonal relationships, self-image, and affects, which is one way of saying instability of emotions, and also marked impulsivity, which begins by early adulthood and is present in a variety of contexts. So this movie does a good job, I think, of portraying um, how this disorder used to be treated in a historical context. So the movie's set in the 60s. Um, You'll notice in in this movie that there's a degree of sort of shame about the diagnosis. The doctor, I think his name is Dr. Potts, uh, is reluctant to tell uh, the patient her diagnosis um, and he says he tells the parents and then to um, uh, what the main character's name 
Uh, okay. Well, uh, this is how good I do my movie research. Anyway, he, he tells her parents, but he, he won't tell her. He says, oh, that, that's not important right now. And 50 years ago, there was sort of this hiding the diagnosis from patients, which continues to pervade in clinical practice now. But as we learn more about the diagnosis, we're becoming more open about discussing it. And I think there's less shame associated with it now than there was maybe even 10 years ago. Um, also in the film, this reflects a time when patients with this diagnosis were admitted to hospital and they stayed almost indefinitely until they got better. And some of the characters were there for a year or longer, which is not something we do now. The mainstay of treatment is uh, through something called dialectical behavioral therapy, and that happens in the community. Like, you don't need to be admitted to a hospital to get this kind of therapy. But I think, you know, they have good fidelity to how this used to be treated, and also I think the actors do a really good job of portraying this disorder, like um, Adam had mentioned earlier that I think Angelina Jolie won an Academy Award for her performance, which was which was just uh, fantastic. So Theron, uh, we saw each other a couple weeks ago and you brought up, uh, you were impressed with uh, two of the films that you watched, A Star is Born and Silver Linings Playbook. Uh, you were impressed with uh, the portrayals in those two films by uh, Bradley Cooper's uh, performance in both, and Jennifer Lawrence in Silver Linings Playbook. And I just wanted you to elaborate a little bit and tell us, you know, kind of, you know, what impressed you about them. So this is a long list of well-received, uh, critically acclaimed movies, and these two stand out for being such a good portrayal of living with a mental illness. And they also set out to tell these stories. Like, they're trying to tell a story about a mental illness, and they pulled it off. So I think... Um, Probably there's some credit to Bradley Cooper here for screening scripts for a good portrayal and a poor one. And I think um, his um, acting, what it would be like to have a manic episode. I mean, when I first watched this movie, I hadn't uh, gone to medical school yet. And I thought, oh, this is stigmatizing, portraying people with mental illness in this way. That's so unrealistic. I didn't actually know what bipolar disorder was at that time. And then when I watched it again... Uh, this fall, I thought, what a what a compelling performance. This is really well done. Um, I think, uh, you know, to have the pressured speech, the the thought form, the waking up in the being up in the middle of the night, uh, irritable, uh, waking up his parents to talk about some kind of trivial detail. That was just that's subtle and very well done. Um, Jennifer Lawrence's performance of a patient with borderline personality disorder also is excellent. The quick uh, shifts in her affect or, or her emotions, her anger outbursts, it's, it's, and her fear of abandonment, it's all really well done. Um, and also, it's just a good story. It's a compelling story that you feel invested in the characters, and they, they tell a, a very true tale. Um, and then also, Star is Born really stands out to me because it's not setting out to tell a story about addiction as the main focus, but I think it's a love story that involves a character with a severe addiction. And I think Bradley Cooper portrays a very well-rounded character in the sense that he is trying to get over his addiction. He goes to rehab, he participates meaningfully, and that scene when um, Ali comes to or Lady Gaga's character comes to visit him 
it's a tense scene because she doesn't know if she'll get her husband back. She doesn't know if he's going to recover, and neither does he. Um, and it's quite poignant for anyone who's had a family member or loved one struggling with addiction, and you don't know if you're going to get them back. And um, I thought that was just really effectively done. I think they delicately show the balance between addiction as a disease and also some component of, of choice. So um, Bradley Cooper is trying his best. It's not portraying him as totally powerless and deterministic. It shows some hope, but also it shows how difficult it can be to overcome uh, such a severe addiction. To go back to Sim Silver Linings playbook, it brings up a very interesting topic. As someone who is in the mental health field, I know that a very common reason that uh, psychiatrists are contacted is to see if someone has borderline personality disorder or bipolar disorder. So I wanted to see there and if you could analyze those two performances a little closely and see how how you can separate borderline personality and and board, and bipolar disorder. Yeah, and that a movie can do such a good job of showing these as distinct entities when I see some patients who I can't tell which one it is uh, speaks to how well this was done. Um, so you'll notice that Bradley Cooper's character with bipolar disorder, for him, it's more of an episodic course that he's doing well when he's in the hospital, say, taking his medications regularly, and then you learn that soon after he leaves hospital, he stops taking them, and then subsequently he's got this increase in his symptoms. Um, so bipolar disorder is more episodic, whereas uh, borderline personality disorder is more consistent and pervasive, and that's one of the techniques we can use to separate the two. If there's a period of good functioning for months and months with uh, interspersed periods of depression or mania where someone departs from their usual functioning, that might be more like bipolar disorder, whereas if it's constant impairment, that would be the borderline personality. Also, I think Bradley Cooper's main issue was his irritability, and I think he had committed some kind of crime which had him in an involuntary hospitalization. So his issue, I think, was more irritability directed outwards, whereas with the borderline personality, the anger was directed inwards with uh, themes of suicide ideation and self-harm uh, for Jennifer Lawrence. So I believe you guys are both uh, in the same camp, I think, uh, in regards to the Joker that just came out a couple years ago. Uh, you guys both thought the mental health representation in the film was poor, I guess is the right word. Do you guys want to elaborate a little bit on what you didn't like in Joker? Yeah. And before we go there, I want to say that this is a separate discussion from whether it was entertaining or whether the performance was compelling. I happen to think um, it was very entertaining and I really enjoyed the performance. But uh, Theron, what do you think about the portrayal of mental illness specifically? I thought there were just a couple of... Uh glaring sort of stigmatizing components which was one like one that really stood out to me was that crummy depressing office that his social worker worked out of it was in a basement I don't know if there were any windows it was gray and she looked so 
bored and unconcerned. And, and I think the conclusion of the interaction was like, do you want to talk to your doctor about changing the meds? And, and like, that's not what a social worker is like. They have an office with plants and light and there's like, there's more optimism to it. And I thought that that gloominess made just engaging with the mental health system seem so pointless and, and, uh, helpless. Um, and also they seem to equate evil with some kind of unknown mental illness. And when he was doing, when he was becoming more angry, the response was he needs more medication or whatever. And, and I don't like that, um, equivocation between crime and mental illness that they were doing in this movie. When you mentioned evil, Theron, uh, the first thing that came to my mind was Dr. Loomis from the Halloween movies. And I know the most recent reboot or remake or reimagining or whatever it was uh, just came out with uh, with doctors dealing with uh, the patient, Michael Myers. And I'm just curious what your thoughts are on uh, the portrayal in however many movies there are in the Halloween franchise. So I would like to start by saying that the especially the first Halloween movie, did a lot of things really well. I, I listened to like a 10-episode podcast just about that movie and all of its strengths for delivering a, a great film on a, on a low budget. Um, I mean, then the cascade of slasher movies that followed maybe is up for more criticism. But, but in any case, that on its own was, was, was a great movie. But I did take issue with... I think that the cheap device of using uh, mental illness and having a psychiatrist chasing someone around to increase our level of fear about him um, as, again, stigmatizing. I've worked in the forensic mental health system. That's uh, patients who have been found not criminally responsible because of a mental disorder. And they, they're just nothing close to that. Most of them are rehabilitated and recovering when they leave hospital. And they're not having symptoms anymore. And the risk to the public is negligible. And then here you have in this movie, uh, I don't know what kind of doctor would refer to their patient as, he's pure evil! And then, you know, t- chasing him around, trying to kill this guy. Like, that I, 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 I do find offensive. And then other movies that, you know, it seems like these horror movies, there's always a psychiatrist in the movie setting up how evil the character is. And and I think that's just cheap. And it's not an honest, anywhere close to an honest portrayal. So you would recommend not acting that way during the Royal College board examination? <laughs> Try your best to refrain, yes. Now, I have been given permission to bring up Leonardo DiCaprio in this episode just once because I was told that you wanted to talk a little bit about Shutter Island. So, Theron, take it away. What are your thoughts on the film Shutter Island, directed by Martin Scorsese? So, the first time I watched this movie, like, it, it was compelling, it was, it was thrilling, it was, it was interesting. But I think if a movie the second watch through is boring, I think that speaks to perhaps how it was a little bit gimmicky. So when you when you watch it the second time, knowing that it's all Leo's uh, delusion, it just it wasn't that interesting because all I could think about was what a campy, poor portrayal of having schizophrenia it was. Um, and there were also some things in the movie that were were just badly researched, like terms are used 
that are are just wrong. So Ben Kingsley, there's one scene that he's you're on a powerful concoction of opioid neuroleptics, and and that's not a thing. Like that, opioids are one thing, and neuroleptics are a different kind of medication. They're not ever combined, and it would have been so simple to like fact check this like it's glaringly wrong from a medical perspective but i guess for the purpose of telling a story opioid neuroleptics sounds scary i don't know but things like that that just felt badly researched um and there wasn't much character development it didn't feel real so I, I was quite disappointed the the second watch through of that one yeah and we certainly ex try and explore the depth and breadth of someone's delusion if they have psychosis, but we certainly don't find it accepted practice to act out or play along with the delusion for them to develop insight into reality. Adam, you've, you've asked a lot of great questions, but if you'll indulge me, I'd like to ask you something. So uh, in One Flew, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, uh, there's a pretty powerful scene where... Um, McMurphy gets the uh, shock treatment towards the end of the movie. And what I'm wondering is if that treatment, like electroconvulsive therapy, were proposed to a loved one of yours by a psychiatrist, how would you feel about your loved one receiving that treatment? Well, based on the tragic moment in that movie, like I'm, I'm picturing it in my head now, and I mean, my initial reaction would be terrified. I, I'm just, I'm using my wife as an example. If, if, if she was uh, being told that she had to, you know, experience what I, I saw in this movie, I'd be terrified. And my initial reaction, honestly, would be no. I, I don't want her to go through that because, I, it, I mean, I'll be honest. I, I don't know what it is doing. So actually. ECT is a safe and one of the most effective treatments we have for medication-resistant depression, mania, or even catatonia or psychosis. Yeah, and this is something that we're sort of fighting an uphill battle over frequently because when we propose this very effective treatment like for uh, depression that is resistant to medications, this treatment is effective in 50 to 80% of cases. And when you think about antidepressants, they work, uh, they have about a 30 to 50% response rate on uh, treatment naive depression. So I think that just speaks a little bit to the efficacy of this treatment. It really works. And in, in my clinical experience, the, the biggest concern I have with ECT is if it's not available. Uh, it can be hard to get because there's only so many ECT setups in any um, region of the province, so it can be difficult for patients to get this really effective treatment. But then a barrier, and, and people say this exactly, is isn't that the thing from Cuckoo's Nest? I don't want that. And of course you don't, because it's very violent the way it's portrayed in the movie. And it's like a sign of defeat when he gets the treatment. But like now it's, it's done under anesthetic, so the seizure doesn't involve like involuntary muscle contractions uh, or there's a, a muscle relaxant that's administered so you're not thrashing around and causing yourself an injury um, and that portrayal scares people away from something that could be life-saving potentially 
So I'm just curious, and I just to you know wrap up uh, Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, how would uh, this procedure compare to the ultimate resolution in that movie when uh, Jack Nicholson's character uh, gets a lobotomy? Well, it's a discredited treatment, and the field won't keep using treatments that are net harmful to the patient. And also, the ultimate goal of that hospitalization felt like it was to break patients into compliance with rules. That's, I mean, of course, there are some rules on the unit for, you know, keeping everybody safe. But that's, our goal isn't to break people down. Our goal is to get people feeling better. It's to treat their illnesses. And that movie kind of makes... I think would make anyone afraid of entering a psychiatric hospital. These places, I, I would like to think, are much more therapeutic that and not to be feared. And I want to say that in the end, it is a story. And I'm under the impression, please correct me, anyone, if I'm wrong, but I believe the author deliberately wanted to tell a story of social oppression and to tell that story cast the psychiatric institution as the villain and the lobotomy as its ultimate weapon. So we've discussed a lot of movies, the ones that we really like and the ones we don't, the ones that you know show good representation with mental illness and mental health. And I was just curious, you know, on the spectrum, if these films could get just one thing right every single time, like the gold standard, the one thing that all these films should have in common when it comes to mental illness and mental health and how it's you know portrayed on the big screen, what do you guys think that one thing should be? I think when you're depicting a mental illness, you should have a measured approach of showing that this is a disease that is impairing their function, but also giving the character some agency and showing that they have the capacity for choice, both good and bad. And it's good to show both of those and not just one or the other. Yeah, and I, I like that idea. And the movies that do that are the ones that we rated more highly. And I guess for me, the single most important thing is just stop equating mental illness with evil. Um, I think that's just a lazy plot device. Or to use mental illness to depict idiocy or stupidity or laziness or buffoonery. I'm glad you uh, brought that up, Ashan, because I was actually going to ask you guys about uh, comedies. And I'm just curious how far you think uh, films uh, should take characters with mental illness in a, in a comedy film. Like, should they be made fun of? I think at this point, it's good to ask ourselves uh, why we make fun of each other. And I think when it works, there's going to be an undertone of affection. Even though someone may be ripping on another friend, there is an affection or a love for them despite all of that. And if that is able to come through in this uh, in a, in a film where the affection is there and the uh, and the consent of the person being made fun of is there to be a part of that interaction or even respond, perhaps it could be okay. But it's also true that maybe this is too difficult for the average writer to pull off. Well, that brings up an interesting question for me, Ashan. Should a professional be hired? to shadow the writers and also be on set during the filming of required scenes. Like we talked about Cuckoo's Nest, for example, in that scene depicting that procedure, should someone have been on set to make sure everything was accurate? Well, I would hope that the culture of uh, surrounding mental illness and how we look at mental illness improves to the point where um, the average writer, if they choose to depict mental illness in a, in a side or supporting kind of way, will do this properly. I certainly think if mental health care or mental illness is front and center to the story, it would benefit from 
a collaboration either with a caregiver, um, someone with lived experience, um, or family member, a loved one, or all of the above. I do want to add that it can be a tempting narrative device to have, a, have an outburst of behavior that is handled aggressively, for example, by security to move a story forward. And I think I would like, if that were the case, even to have someone on the scene to make sure the measured process of verbal de-escalation and the appropriate use of and uh, uh, and the appropriate use of restraints. Yes, and if Hollywood is interested in retaining the uh, services of experts to comment on movies for their accuracy, please just Hollywood reach out to Adam for the contact information of Ashan and I. We would be happy to come to California for a reasonable rate. Well, I need to finish my training first. <laughs> I guess that's a reasonable consideration. Well, I think that pretty much wraps uh, everything up. I've asked all my questions, and you guys have been great. You've been very informative, and I really appreciate you joining the Viewer's Cut. Uh, you know, you guys are welcome back anytime, and uh, yeah, I appreciate you guys stopping by. Thanks, Adam. Uh, really good questions, and it was a, a pleasure to be on today. Thanks. Thanks, Adam. Really appreciate it. Well, now, the issue here, Adam, I think you're quite resistant to answering oh, the question to tell me about your mother. <laughs> all right, we're done. <laughs> hey there. Remember that you can follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, and many other options. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram as The Viewer's Cut. Bye-bye.